Welcome to the Urban Wine Club podcast. Pour a glass, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome for joining us this evening for the Sharing Wine and Food at the Table on behalf of the Urban Wine Club. I will be one of your co-hosts. I'm Foti Stamos. Along with me is my other co-host, Ari Kalos. Hello. Um, we wanted to, first of all, thank those that actually we got to see in person. Those that called us on the phone, we had some glitches with our platform, but thank you for your patience. Uh, we're excited for another segment uh, that we've love to be a part of thanks to Susan and Bill Manful. This has been very um, dear to our hearts um, ever since we met both Bill and Susan. Uh, but I don't want to take any of their time for this specific webinar. We just want to say hello and thank you. I'm going to turn it over to Bill and Susan, who is going to enlighten you this, uh, this evening with lots of good information and good food and wine. So Susan and Bill, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Foti and Ari. Uh, thank you very much for hosting this. And I'd like everyone who's listening to know that the profits from the sales of, of Alex's wine, all of the profits go to the Alex Manfield Memorial Fund. And we are deeply grateful to Foti and to um, Ari for, for their generosity. Our pleasure. So welcome. Um, I'm Susan Manfield. This is my husband, County Manful to some of you, Bill Manful to, to others. And um, we are the um, proud parents of uh, Alexandra Manful, who was born in September of 1991 and died in August of 2018 due to pandas. So we are, we are here to raise awareness about pandas. That's very important to us that um, we continue to make people aware of what PANDAS is and what PANS is. And uh, because we, we firmly believe that had we known what it was, our daughter would be here with us today. Had the doctors who saw her from multiple disciplines known what was wrong with her, she would be here today. At the very end, she... I uh, did see Dr. Beth Latimer, who is a um, national, international expert on the subject of pandas and pans, and was diagnosed with, um, with pandas and was set to get treatment. Um, unfortunately, sadly, profoundly sadly, we lost her before the, the treatment began. So for us, it's really important to continue to make people aware of this. And we're asking you to be a part of that team to make people aware of pandas and pans. There are many people watching who have children or who are themselves, they've been diagnosed with one or another of, of these disorders and uh, they know how important it is to educate, to um, keep up the awareness and to support research. So that's what we're here for. Uh, it's part of a campaign that we've called a table, which in French means come to the table. The French say a table, and we say, we Americans say, uh, come to the table. And we entitled this campaign that because at our house, we spend a lot of time around the table, a lot of time eating, a lot of time drinking wine to go with our food. 
and uh, we would discuss things that were fun and we would discuss things that were um that were upsetting things that we wanted each other's opinions on or, or maybe just something very mundane about what happened during the day uh, we think that that's a good place to raise awareness about pandas uh, in addition to, to conferences and symposiums and symposia and uh, webinars like this, uh, we think that it's nice just to have casual conversations around the table about what is it, uh, what can we do about it, how can we make sure that people are, are uh, aware of it. So that's why we have called it that. And um, let me, before I introduce our, our guest speakers, those who are at the table, so to speak, let me introduce the wine. Uh, many of you have the wine, I know. Uh, if you don't, you can order it online or go in. I, Lisa, I see you have it too. Uh, Heidi, you're drinking it. Joanne, you're drinking it. Um, so if you, if you don't have it, you can order it from the Urban Wine Club or you can go buy the, the cork stuff. I see Lorraine there. Uh, hi, um, and Skip. So you can go by and pick up a bottle. I see so many people whose faces I just adore. Thank you for being here. Um, it, it, this, this is a Chateau Barberbell red. Uh, the coupe is a Madeleine. Oops, where, where are we? Yes. There. And we, this came about because we asked a friend of ours, Madeleine Premier, who owns the Chateau Barberbell in Provence, if she would be willing to make a, a separate wine for, for Alex. And she leaned right into this project and has been very generous with regard to uh, her support for this. After we got Madeline involved, we asked an artist in Provence, Gerard de Sirdi, if he would be willing to create some artwork for the label. And he came up with this painting, which actually hangs in another room um, of Alex walking down the very narrow street in the tiny village of, of Lumerhan in, uh, in Provence. That was an area that she loved. She always told us that she felt very much herself there. So um, underneath it, there's some information about pandas and also attached to it is a small booklet which describes pandas and pans. It tells Alex's story. It talks about the wine. It talks about um, the people who helped us with this project. And there are many, many people. Uh, it was never truer. The, the, the um, quote that it takes a village is really never truer in this particular case. So that's the wine that we're drinking tonight. Having introduced it, make sure that you open it. This wine needs to breathe. And um, it will be very interesting to, to pay attention if you will, how it changes over time in terms of what the aromas are and also in terms of what it tastes like. It's a particularly interesting wine in that way. So we're here tonight. We will use the, the wine and the food as a, as a backdrop, but we, what we know what the real project is uh, tonight. So without further ado, let me introduce Jennifer Vitelli and uh, Sheila Gouch. We are um, very happy that they're here. I've had the, the pleasure of knowing them for a few years now. They are tireless advocates for children, adolescents, and young adults who've been diagnosed with pandas and pans. 
otherwise known as basal ganglia encephalitis. Sheila is a licensed clinical social worker with over 20 years of experience in working with complicated uh, um, mental health issues. She has a master's degree in education, a license, she's licensed to be a principal, and she is a principal, and she also has a, a, a special education administration license. Currently, she's a principal at Dearborn Academy, uh, overseeing grades three through 12. She's actively involved in advocacy work, and recently she played an instrumental role in passing the legislation in the state, uh, the state of Massachusetts that requires the insurance companies in that state to, to provide insurance and requires the creation of an advisory group. Uh, she and Jennifer are here to, to talk about that. And Jennifer is... Um, they're, they're quite the duo, along with several other people I know who are uh, tuned in tonight, such as uh, Amanda and Blake, uh, for example, and many others. There's quite a team. Um, but Jennifer has a master's degree in business and a long history of um, organizing and leading and building organizations. I uh, was curious about the organization, um, the, in the, in the, rec the largest recreation department in the state of Massachusetts, overseeing 300 people um, and a multi-million dollar uh, budget. I think if you can do that, you can, you can move the project forward here in raising awareness, education, and uh, money for, for research. But when she wasn't doing that, she was volunteering uh, for various uh, charitable causes. She is a founding member of New England PANS. Uh, she's a founding member and co-leader of the Massachusetts Coalition for PANS and PANDAS legislation. I imagine that Sheila is too um, a founding member of that. Uh, and very recently she joined the board of the John B. Cunningham PANS and PANDAS Foundation a nonprofit that offers hope, health, and support to families. And I'm particularly uh, glad to see that you actually mentioned adults in your, on your website, that you are advocating for them as well. So thank you, I'm glad that you're here. And uh, once we talk about some food, we're gonna have you guys, we're gonna turn the floor over to you to talk about uh, this legislative work, really important work that was just done in Massachusetts. David, who is uh, in the kitchen, getting ready to cook. Uh, I've known David for 20 years. He is a real Renaissance man. He began his career as a professional musician, playing the bass in Albany. I uh, have never heard him play the bass. I keep asking him, but, but I haven't heard it yet. But he forged an incredibly interesting path to his current position at the University of Arizona, where he is in the honors school and honors college, and he is the special advisor to the dean there. And when he is not busy with that work, and it does keep him very, very busy, he writes a food blog called Cocoa and Lavender. He also writes for me on my blog called uh, Provence Weinstein. He writes one column a month in which he talks about uh, how food and wine can, uh, can pair. 
Uh, he's a photographer, he's a writer, he travels, he speaks several languages. He will tell you he doesn't speak several languages, but he does. And uh, he is, I've known him 20 years and have very easily discovered that he is really a, a, an incredible human being. He and his husband, Mark, um, were good friends of, of our daughter, Alex. She adored them and uh, visited them on their, their own in, in Tucson on multiple occasions. And we're very grateful to David and Mark for their support in raising awareness and raising funds for, um, to support our efforts for the Alex Mample Memorial Fund. So that's our team. Um, we're here, uh, I think probably most of you know, have some idea what pandas and pans are, but just very, very, very briefly, pandas is not that cute little bear that we uh, see in the Washington DC zoo. Uh, at least that's the last place I saw one. Uh, it stands for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders Associated with Strap. It is, it falls under the larger category called PANS, which is Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Symptom. I'd like to cross the P off of both of those disorders because it is not just a pediatric disorder. It uh, is very clear that it's not limited to children. It can and does surface after puberty uh, for the first time, and it can occur again uh, in young adulthood and, and in adolescence. Um, PANDAS, as I mentioned, it occurs as a result of um, strep, the bacteria strep. And PANS, for PANS, the uh, specific trigger is not specified. It, it could be um, a walking pneumonia, could be Bartonella, it could be um, Borrelia, it could be the common cold. So it's not specified what triggers the autoimmune uh, response in the individual. Um, in both cases, it's, they're post-infectious, they're autoimmune disorders characterized by neuropsychiatric uh, symptoms and probably caused by inflammation, it, it undoubtedly caused by inflammation in the basal ganglia. Uh, in the case of pandas, you uh, would recognize it by an acute onset, usually, but not always, of obsessions and compulsions and maybe tics. Uh, for pans, it's obsessions and compulsions and restricted, uh, eat, severely restricted eating behavior. And then there's an array of symptoms that can be found. The most common ones are um, separation anxiety or anxiety in general. There's personality changes, mood swings, extreme rage, impulsivity, uh, suicide ideation. There's a whole range of symptoms. Those are just some of them. Um, in terms of behavior, the, the, the neurological symptoms may manifest themselves in behavior. And uh, that can include uh, um, 
what's called dysgraphia, which is when handwriting significantly changes, um, urinary frequency, uh, sudden bedwetting, um, a loss of math skills, to mention just a few of the, uh, the behaviors that may surface. These are, can be very debilitating disorders requiring the child to um, be unable to go to school, for example. In the case of Alex, she was a highly functioning young adult when this befell her. And she continued to be highly functioning uh, right until the very end. So it does surface differently across ages, undoubtedly. I think that's probably enough about what it is because we're gonna to continue to talk about it, but let's start the food. David, Susan, are you ready? I am ready. Okay, so welcome everybody. Um, we're going to be talking about charcuterie boards this evening and how to put them together and what are some of the important components. Um, and I'm gonna start with actually, not necessarily the most important component, but a very important component and that is the bread. Um, I'm going to do a demonstration in several different states just to show you how to make the really simplest no-knead bread, which takes no time at all, um, except for resting for you know, eight to 15 hours when you don't have to do anything. So I'm gonna start by showing how to mix the bread. And I'm gonna quickly turn on my microwave for a second here. I'm going to uh, heat some water in the microwave. Um, I, mean, I have three cups of flour here. And to that, I'm going to add two and a quarter teaspoons of yeast. So if you buy your yeasts in these little packets that you get at the grocery store, that's two and a quarter teaspoons. You buy the jar, you just have to measure it. So uh, two and a quarter teaspoons yeast, a teaspoon of salt, and a tablespoon of sugar. And we mix that. And then we're going to add the water to it. Oops, now there's flour all over again. Sorry. Um, get the water. I forgot to mention that these recipes are available online um, if you have if you don't already have them on the Urban Cork stuff. Yeah, they're on the, on the, the website. Stuff. And then, so we're going to add a cup and a half of water that's been heated to, you know, a little hotter than body temperature, maybe one ten to one fifteen degrees. And we're just going to mix that, and it looks terrible. And it doesn't look like much of a bread dough. And that's probably the point of this all is it's going to, I've got the wine in the way, you can't see it. Um, it's just gonna look like a shaggy dough and that's what it should look like. Uh, and then you're going to cover it. I'm gonna finish mixing in some of this flour. You can see that the dough is very, very shaggy. There's nothing special about it. It doesn't even look like bread. It looks like a cake that went bad. Uh, we're going to uh, scrape off some of the uh, dough on the spoon. And I'm going to cover this sink. And I have a cover here. And I'm going to just put this back in the microwave because it's a nice still place. And I'm gonna let it sit there until tomorrow morning. It can sit up to 15, probably even a little bit longer. David, that was so fast. It really takes no time at all. Uh, in the morning, what it's going to look like. Um, I'm going to show you in a couple different segments. Um, let me dry my cover top here. Um, there's, there's a point where you take the dough out and you do this folding process. 
So I'm going to do it a little bit backwards, and I'm going to show you what it looks like after it has rested for half an hour while the Dutch oven preheats in the oven. It gets very big. It looks a little bit more like a dough, but it's still very, very soft. And we're going to take this dough. Wait, at what point does it look like that? This is after it's rest, after, after 15 hours. I, I have to go backwards. After 15 hours, you take it out of the bowl and I'll show you mm -hmm. that in a minute. And then you fold it a couple times and let it sit for a half an hour while you let the pan preheat. So I've got to take the pan out of the oven now. And it's a Dutch oven. Uh, any kind of Dutch oven will work. You can use a large cast iron oven. Uh, this is a Le Creuset. Um, they all work beautifully. They are very hot. It's at 450 degrees. Um, so then we're going to take the dough and I gotta find my scraper. Here it is. I'm going to scrape the dough and we're going to put it into the pan. It's going to sizzle. And then I'm going to wipe my hand off and we're going to put it in the oven. Okay, so we've fast forwarded overnight. We're fast forwarding the overnight. Yeah, the okay. overnight now is sitting to be cooked tomorrow morning. And you can put it in in the morning before you go to work and make have fresh bread when you get home. And I'm going to cover right. it. The first part gets covered and it goes in the oven for a half an hour. You make it look so easy. It is pretty easy. Now, now I'm going to go back a step and show you what it looks like after it's rested for the eight to 15 hours. And it really doesn't look like bread at all at this point. So let me show you what that looks like. I'm gonna have a lot of bread out This is what you first see when you get up in the morning? Yeah, this is what you first see when you get up in the morning. And you think, okay. oh no, it's wrong. Something happened, it's bad. It looks like sludge, beige sludge. That's what it looks like. You go in with your scraper, you take it off out of the bowl. You basically punching it down. You take it out, you put it on an oiled board. This board has been oiled before. Get out any extra pieces. And then you fold it just a couple times. It's very sticky. You can add a little more flour if you want, but you don't need to. And then you're gonna put the bowl back on top of it. And this is when we go back. You put the Dutch oven in the oven, preheated to 450 for a half an hour. And then this will rise for another half an hour and then get baked. Okay. And that is making the bread. Wow. And David, we're, um, we're so appreciative that we could see these, these steps. I know you're going to end up with a lot of bread. Yeah, I'm going to end up with a lot of bread. Uh, we've been threatening to take it to people's house for Easter. Um, <laughs> the, um, the bread will be out by the time we're in the stone, the program. So you'll get to see what it looks like when it comes out of the oven. It's really a very, very good bread. Um, it is one of the cornerstones of a good charcuterie board. So now we get to talk about the charcuterie board and the wine. And um, this is a wine that I've had several times now, Alex's wine. Um, it's a really, really good wine. And uh, it's a very, uh, I was going to say forgiving, but it's very flexible wine. It's what Susan and I were talking about. It goes with a lot of different things. And when you're putting together a charcuterie board, am I jumping ahead too far, Susan? No, no, no. I, I think you're, I, I okay. think we're, we're doing really well. Great. So um, I have this great board. Well, well actually, I, wait, you know what? Let me just say, let me just, before we start, let's get some feedback from people. You can um, write it in the, in the chat room, if you will. 
what you're tasting in the wine. We can, we can start off, kind of swirl your wine around, uh, let it aerate a little bit, and then take a sniff. They really stick your nose in there. And what's, what's interesting, I learned in a, in a seminar I just took, is that each nostril works differently. So you might try putting your right nostril in there first, and then your left nostril. And it's interesting that they alternate. I've forgotten the length of time. It seems to me like it's about an, an hour between the dominance of, of one versus the other, but there is really a difference. So try that, put both nostrils in there and, and then try one. And you can put your hand on top and swirl it around. It helps aerate it a little bit more and keep the, keeps the aroma in there. And smell it. What, what is anyone um, getting on the nose? Anyone care to type in a chat? Or David, what are you getting? Uh, I'm getting a lot of uh, red fruit cherry. I'm getting some dark black, uh, black cherry. Um, really nice tannins. Uh, it's, a, it's a medium to light bodied wine. It's not a heavy duty wine, but it's a very, um, it's a really nice flavor. What about you, Tony? It, it is, it's, um, as you said, it's a really very flexible wine, as you'll see when you start to put together the charcuterie. What, what are you hitting on the nose or on the palate? It has a very nice finish as well. It does. You like black, black fruit, blackberries? Yeah. Yeah. So, Tanya, I'm not getting any um, chats. Is no one chatting with me? Or <laughs> are, uh, do I need to do something? Well, let me see. There may be some shyness right now. Is there? <laughs> okay, well, maybe, maybe a little later after we've had some wine. Uh, amazing how that happens. It is amazing how that happens. <laughs> so, um, I have a great charcuterie board. Um, my brothers who are on this call will recognize it as the turkey carving board from the famous um, Thanksgiving in Vermont that we had. And uh, I absconded with the board afterwards. On the other side, it's grooved for turkey, but I use it for charcuterie more than I use it for turkey. Um, sometimes if you have people coming to your home and you have vegetarians and you have uh, vegans, uh, who, who knows, you can have separate little charcuterie boards for separate parts. These were given to me. They actually look like books. They are the movable feast, the food of, for thought, and the art of charcuterie. Quite fun to have oh, for this. And you could keep the vegetables and fruit on one, the cheeses on another, and the meats on another, so there's no cross-contamination. Luckily, in this household, we pretty much eat everything. So I have my board here. And um, some basics that I think of for a charcuterie board are cheese and charcuterie, the meats, and some fruit nuts. Um, I generally like to have three cheeses. I like to have two to three meat or charcuterie uh, products. So prosciutto, um, tonight we're going to have some uh, truffled mousse pate. Um, Fruit-wise, I have a very interesting, and this recipe is also on the website. It is an apple horseradish jam that I had when I was in Venice. And it is an amazing condiment to go along with uh, our charcuterie board. I have cooked down the apples already. They're quite well cooked. Um, you can see there, it's basically already sort of a jam, but I'm going to add a tablespoon or so of 
homemade horseradish, home, home uh, grated horseradish, which is very strong. So you can test it after a tablespoon and see if it's enough. Um, with a fresh horseradish, usually a tablespoon is enough, uh, but you might like it stronger. And so after putting that in, I'm just going to take the, um, I'm going to take the, uh, my stick blender and I'm going to puree that, or not puree it, I'm going to chunk it up a bit. And it's going to be a great condiment on the board. It smells really good, very pungent, and it actually works beautifully with wine. It sort of clears your palate a little bit when you're eating cheeses and meats. So that's it. That was the, and so that recipe is on the uh, website, um, and we'll have that on the board in a few seconds. So David, how long did you cook the apples? The apples are cooked for about 15 to 20 minutes. And one of the key things when you're cooking apples and sugar is to watch your bubbles. If your bubbles start getting big, you're done. Um, because if that means you're getting towards the candy stage of the sugar, and if you, or you can add more water. Um, because you don't want it to get too hard, it'll turn into candy. So um, it, I, it 15 to 20 minutes, 15 minutes is usually plenty. Uh, depending on the type of apple you use too, some apples are um, crisper and tartar and they don't break down as easily. Um, an apple I like to use a lot is Macintosh. These are pink ladies. Macintosh is a very soft apple. So 10 minutes might even be enough for Macintosh apples where 15 minutes is what I did for the pink ladies. So uh, David, I, I don't have the recipe right in front of me. Um, so you're just doing, it's just apples and sugar, no other spices. So it's a pound and of apples. Course, and the horseradish later. Right, so a pound of apples, a cup of sugar, and a quarter cup of water. And again, if it gets too bubbly, the bubbles get too big, add a little more water, cool it down a bit if you need to cook the apples a little longer, and then add the horseradish and blend it, and that's it. Um, it keeps really long time in the refrigerator. I, I've had it keep up to a month. Um, eventually, there will be a little green stuff growing on it, and that's when you throw it out. But uh, we usually eat it much faster than that. <laughs> or give it to the guests you don't like, I guess. But um, it, in general, though, this just, it, it adds a little interest to your, uh, well, and a little flavor, so to speak, to the uh, cheese board. Well, it, adds a, it adds a real um, uh, piquancy. It really is sharp, and it's, it's a nice combination with all the different um, cheeses. It's especially good with manchego and cheddar. Apple and cheddar is a good combination, but manchego works beautifully with this. Um, so uh, I, I definitely think it's a really good thing to have on any board. And uh, we actually serve it with pork roast as well as a condiment on the side. When I was growing up, uh, we used to have applesauce as a condiment sometimes on the holiday table. Uh, and this is something that would be sort of similar, but a little bit more interesting than regular old applesauce. And so it gives you a nice vocal. Oh, it looks it looks perfect for the for the board. And let me just say that people are um, beginning to comment and they they're tasting as as you suggested uh, berries, uh, maybe a little citrus, licorice, a couple of votes for um, for licorice. But all the comments are indicating that they really like the wine. It is it is really a very nice wine. It's made from three grapes. It's mostly Grenache, I think 40% Grenache, and then half and half Syrah and Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, it's, it's a great combination. It's got some fruit, it's got structure, it's got spice, maybe even a little bit of pepper from the Syrah. 
right. And the, and the cab gives it that the tannins, I think, that you feel at the end and in the in the finish. It's really wonderful. Yeah, I, I agree. So when putting together the board, um, the thing I like to do is make sure it's easy for the guests. Um, when you'd have a hard cheese like Manchego, uh, there's nothing worse than trying to cut into it on a cheese board and having it go all over the place. So for a hard cheese, I, um, and by the way, I know there's quite a few people in Arizona here tonight. Uh, when you do this and you prep it in advance, you have to cover everything with plastic wrap or else you will end up with dried everything. Um, so on the Manchego, I cut it up in advance into triangles so people can take a triangle um, and they don't have to bother cutting it. For softer cheese like the Port Salute, I use, I, you can use that with a knife on this board. And then uh, my third cheese is a local specialty. This is a goat blue and it's an ash coated. It's really not a blue cheese. It's a goat cheese with a blue vein and, a, and an ash coating. And it has a wonderful flavor. And I know that it goes really well with this wine. So those are my three cheeses. And then the other thing that makes it easier for your guests is making sure your implements are small and not bottom heavy. They won't fall off the board. So they're, they're lightweight. Um, that That's helps such a lot. good point. It's, it's so embarrassing when you go to cut it and set it down and it flips all over the place. Right. I mean, someone gave us these great little cheese knives. They're heavy crystal on one end and they fall over the place. And you end up with everything all over. So something that's very light. These are Lyo. They're, they're meant for a cheese board. They're small. They're lightweight. They're perfect. So to this now, I've got my cheeses on here. I'm going to add some meats. Um, the meat that I'm going to add, one of them I mentioned was the truffle pate. And by the way, all this can be so easily sourced at your local Trader Joe's or grocery store. Nothing has to, you don't have to have a specialty cheese shop. Um, you can just go to Trader Joe's and they have some good cheeses. Their pate is decent. And so you I'm taking it out of the container, um, just kind of loosening it so I can pull it out. And I'm gonna put that on the end of the board here. And again- And I'm just gonna put a plug in. We do have a specialty cheese store right across the street from us. It's called uh, South Street and Vine. And they have many of the cheeses that, that we got. And I know that they have a Manchego. And oh, they have, yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> what was the other one? You have a Manchego and I have blue. a Port Salute and I have um, the okay. uh, the Blue Goat. I know they okay. don't have that because that is just local. No, they don't. But they have some, they have one of my favorites. They have Humboldt Fog. Yes. Which is a great pairing with this wine. The, the, it, we gave it four stars in the I would definitely give that. That's a, that's, this is similar to a Humboldt Fog, but a little bit more uh, bluey. So with the um, pate, I'm going to give it a little bit of mustard in a little bowl here so people can put mustard with it and some cornichon little uh the sour pickles you can get those at trader joe's and again a little fork to pick them out um i'm usually annoying and pick them up with my fingers um i like little spoons one one little hint when you go to the ice cream store and they have these little wooden spoons grab a couple extra they make great little spreaders for your charcuterie table um so i've got some olives these are moroccan cured olives and if you have those, you also need to give somebody, uh, if they're going to be putting them back on, a little bowl for the pits. And then pretty much this, is, I'm going to add some prosciutto. Um, prosciutto, I just usually roll up, makes it easy. Um, and also goes really well with this wine, by the way. Did you try it with prosciutto, Susan and Tani? No, we didn't. We tried it with yeah. two types of uh, salami. 
Um, oh, that's also right. with a, a, a pate de campagna um, with the mustard and the cornichons. It, it, I think that with the Syrah, with the spicy salami, it's particularly good. Right. So I'm rolling my, my prosciutto, but you can also just kind of bunch it up and make little rosettes with it. And that works out really well too. So you can have some prosciutto on there. Um, and then uh, I usually just take some nuts or fruit and sprinkle them around. And uh, fruits that go really well with this are, I have great dried apricots and just putting a couple of dried apricots on the, did I mention I had to wash my hands before doing this? <laughs> and just put a couple around. Um, just makes it look a little nice. Uh, they get stuck together. Um, and then uh, we'll put some nuts on. I, uh, one thing about nuts is if you're going to put nuts out, make sure they're, um, if they're in their shell, that they're easy to shell, like pistachios. You don't want, uh, I mean, grandma's uh, nutcracker is a really nice thing, but it's really kind of annoying at the charcuterie table. <laughs> So then I just put some nuts around and these are hazelnuts. These are um, pre-roasted and skinned and uh, all sorts of nuts work well. Um, walnuts work super, super well. Almonds are a great choice. Um, we had a little discussion about pecans as maybe not the best choice, but they could be for some wines. Yeah, or cashews. Or cashews, yes. Yeah. Um, um. So there's, there's a pretty nice charcuterie board. Uh, this is dinner tonight, and um, the bread is, uh, put it over here. I often will put the bread separately because there's not a lot of room. If I have crackers, I'll put the crackers in and around. But here is um, some of the bread that I, I cut up. Um, and you can see that it's a really nice grain. Um, Susan and Tony, you've had this when you visited. We have had it, and it is easy. I I've not made it, but Tony has made it. And it, it certainly appears to be, to be easy. So what you can um, do also with the bread is you can vary your flours. Generally, two-thirds regular white flour or bread flour, and then you can do a third semolina or a third wheat, a third oatmeal. You can have oat, oat flour. You can have all sorts of different flours in there. You can have herbs. You can top it with salt or pepper, and it's a really nice way to just mix it up a little bit. That looks super. Um, uh, one thing that we added was uh, a couple of different kinds of olives, and you talked about a tapenade. Um, right, tapenade is a really great. And I didn't talk about taste and texture. You want to make sure you have varied tastes in their cheeses. You don't want um, three different kinds of goat cheese. You want to have different things. So there's some different palate um, choices. Uh, you also want different textures. You want a soft cheese. A medium and a hard cheese is usually a really good way to look at it. Um, and then uh, you can really have a lot of fun with um, all the different other parts of it. You can add vegetables. I generally don't add vegetables. Uh, too healthy. I kind of like the way it is here. Um, and that's, I think, what I have. It looks, it, it, it looks um, terrific. And you've chosen all of the things that that we chose because again, I, I, I think that this is uh, a wine that goes with many different kinds of cheeses. Tony and I tasted, I don't know, 14, 15 different cheeses. And there was only one that didn't really go with the wine. It was a very, very ripe uh, red hawk. Um, was that mm -hmm. it? 
Yep. Oh yeah, um, Red Hawk, yeah. To a, a strong cheese. And so this is a relatively young wine, so you don't want a really aged cheese. We did have a three-year-old Gouda and that went, went really well, I think, but you wouldn't want something really aged. Do you think, David? I don't think so. Um, I think the um, the most age you would want to get was something like the the blue. Any kind of blue veining is an aging, but it it, it can. That's a really good way to go. But I, I I would think the stinky cheeses would be a good way of the really aged cheeses that have that really ripe, wonderful smell. Needs a stronger wine. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, but but you know everything. Even if I didn't think it went terrifically well. I, uh, I mean, it, it, nothing clashed. I also wouldn't put a real fresh cheese here, like a, like a fresh goat cheese, but it would, it would not, I mean, it would still work. I, if that's what I had, I would certainly eat it, but I wouldn't choose it. It depends. I mean, I would also say some fresh cheeses would work like burrata worked really well with this wine. Ah, okay. Um, and so I know we've had burrata and, uh, tomatoes with this and it's a great combination, but but goat, just plain chef, could be a little bit off for it. I think you're right. So um, this was one of Alex's favorite wines. It is still available to answer um, your brother's question, David. Um, it is still available. We did sell out of the initial uh, import back in July or August. We sold out. We sold out in the same day. Um, but uh, we do have more, and it is available, as I said, at the, at the Cork Stop and uh, Urban Wine Club. But I, I think that Alex preferred a, a light red like this. This was one of her favorite things, and this particular wine was one of her favorite wines. But I, I also thought it was worth mentioning that um, Madeline, Madeline is, I think she's around 30 years old. Maybe she's 31. And she is really uh, a hot ticket, really smart, um, a really lovely person. And she's doing great things at, as the fourth generation vigneron at this, uh, at the Chateau Barbabel. She makes an excellent rosé. Don't rule out rosés to go with your cheese board or your charcuterie. Right, David? I would agree. I, I, both rosés and white wines, I think, have a real good place for charcuterie. In fact, when I did the charcuterie board for a Provence wine scene, we did a white wine. Yeah, exactly. That, and I, I think you were, that was one of the, was that the, the I can't remember, Cali, Cali, Calis, Chateau Calis? No, it was a woman's name. Um, I can look it up next time I'm off camera. But it, it's, it's um, I think you were surprised even that, I was actually, I was, yeah. I was surprised, especially with some of the things I had. I had a, a really good thing for the charcuterie board or uh, duck or pork confit or um, riettes. Those are really great on a, and, and that's what really surprised me is how well the white wine went with the duck riettes I had. Uh, and white wines too, as well, you just mentioned, and uh, uh, Madeline makes an excellent uh, white wine. Um, and these, I believe, were available at the cork stop, um, I, I believe. This is a furry. But I know that this next one, this is from her entry level of wines, and this is the uh, Fleury. This wine just won from Drinks Magazine. Drinks Decanter. 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 
the best rosé of the year last year. And it's very inexpensive and it really is terrific. It was uh, wonderful. Uh, it's, it's being tested this weekend. And David will be publishing a food and wine pairing article on Provence Wine Zine about that particular rosé. So I would, um, I, I really encourage you, I, of course I encourage you to um, support the Alex Manfield Fund by purchasing the red wine that was made for her, uh, for our daughter Alex, but I encourage you to support the winery itself. Uh, she's just been incredibly generous. She's wonderful. Uh, and by the way, what kind of fundraiser would I be if I said, you know, you don't have to just buy the wine to support the Alex Manfield Memorial Fund. You can actually just write a check. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Easier um, for me to say than you, but. <laughs> um, and the wine bottle is so pretty. I, I just kind of want to give a shout out to a pediatrician in Massachusetts, Dr. Um, Melissa McCormick, uh, who was on our first food and uh, serving food and wine at the table. And she has such a big heart. She sent to us um, this, the lights that can go inside the wine and the wine bottle to show us what you can do if, if you don't want to throw out or recycle your beautiful bottle, you can turn it into a um, kind of a light for the for the table and we really think that's super those lights are available at amazon if you're if you're interested so so david we're um we're we're ready we're we're going to kind of wait so in the meantime i was going to say i'm going to say one thing about bread a couple of things about bread if i can do you mind two seconds yes okay so the bread is in about seven minutes i'm just going to reach in the oven and take off the cover and that's going to go for the last 15 minutes uncovered. And that's when it's going to really brown nicely and get that really good crust that we love. The reason you do it in the Dutch oven is it creates a steam oven for it. Um, when uh, my mom used to bake French bread, she would put in a tray of ice cubes underneath the bread. And that would steam the oven and give you a really good thick crust. And that's what the, the Dutch oven does for this. Also, when I usually when I raise the bread, the first part, the 15 hours, I put it in the oven. To raise, I put I turn on the oven for a couple seconds and let it warm up, and then I let it go for the 12 to 15 hours or whatever. Um, I sometimes have forgotten that the bread's in there, and I go to preheat the oven, and the oven goes on to 450, and I end up with plastic wrap or plastic covers all over my bread dough, and have to start over again. So I have created a little note that I leave for myself. This is the most important hint I can give you that says bread in the oven, so that when I go to the next morning, I'm in my stupor. I uh, don't actually turn on the oven before I take the dough out. Ah, well, good to know that things like that happen to real chefs and not just people like me. <laughs> yes, the linguistics are quite impressive then, if you think I speak other languages. <laughs> All right. So while we're waiting for your bread to come out, um, I, I think that we have, I, I think I've answered most of the questions there. The wine is available at the Urban Wine Club. The um, the Madeline, I believe that you're. I don't know, Foodie. Maybe or Ari. Maybe you can tell me if you're talking about the both. The, I know the Fleury is available there. Do you have the white and do you have the the rosé from the Madeline uh, so, Maybe you can let us know. So we so we uh, we have plenty of the uh, Cuvée Rouge. 
Okay. Which is wine, plenty of it, always uh, uh, in stock. And as far as the rosés, uh, we are waiting for the 2020 vintage to arrive. It's supposed to arrive maybe in the next uh, week to 10 days, according to uh, Patrick Walsh. We do also have the Fleury of the 2019 vintage. I would like to say, though, that some folks, um, you know, there's the way that things are presented, want the fresh rosé, the one that's just really recently released. But I have to say, um, even the ones that have been around from 2019 have actually developed really nicely. So don't hesitate to, to drink 2019 rosés as well. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it, it was the 2019 that, that got the best rosé in the world, according to uh, Decanter. Um, also, 2019 is, is recognized as being one of the best vintages mm, yes. uh, out of Provence. So if you can get a 2019, so I would go with that. If you were to order currently on Urban Wine Club for the um, Barbelle Fleury, you will be receiving the 2019 at the moment. And that's what you want, guys. That's, that's what you want. It's great. Yeah. Uh, and David will be, again, writing something for um for Provence Wine Zine about the um about that wine and he has a uh the recipe for the meal that he paired with it will be on his blog Coco and Lavender. What was the 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 recipe again? What's the meal, David? It's um a, it's a frittata. Um when I go to the farmer's market I buy the fresh onions. The now that it's spring we get the spring onions with the long skinny tops. So I just chop the tops and saute them. And that's the basis of the frittata. So it's onion tops. Okay, perfect. All right. So watch for those. Without any uh, more discussion on my part, Jennifer and um, Sheila, if you could tell us a little bit about this legislation and um, how that will impact families in uh, Massachusetts who are uh, battling pandas and pans. Uh, thank, sure. you. thank you. Thank you, Tony and Susan. First, thank you so much for sharing um, your extraordinary Alex with all of us. Um, your, through your advocacy, you are undoubtedly changing the world. So on behalf of everyone here and in the Pandas Pants community, thank you uh, from the bottom of our hearts. Um, S2984. Victory, January 1st, Governor Baker here in Massachusetts passed it into law. And um, it was a victory for not only the Pandas Pans um, families, but also the treating physicians uh, that um, whose hands were tied. And what this uh, law has done has now put the um, medical treatment back between the patient and their doctor. And um, it mandates insurance, private insurance companies to cover Pandas Pans treatment. Um, huge victory in Massachusetts, first insurance mandate to pass in eight years. And also it, it um, established a um, Pandas Pans Advisory Council um, in Massachusetts, which um, it's Department of Public Health Advisory Council. And to us, that's kind of the long game, like the Bill is going to take care of our most critically ill uh, pandas pants patients, but the uh, advisory council, our hope is, will really start changing um, the discussion and the path for mental health here in Massachusetts. Sheila, do you want to add to that? I think you did a great job. That was really comprehensive. 
Yeah, we're really excited. It was definitely down to the wire. And um, just to be able to get both in, I think we really had a strong legislative team that was really excited about it as well. And we just, it was just all momentum from families and caregivers. And it was really an amazing grassroots movement. So, and you all helped. So, <laughs> so how, how many states in our country have a requirement to, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the, the, the problem um, in the rest of the country and how many states actually do require that insurance companies cover um, this treatment. New Hampshire is one of them, we're proud to say. I believe there are seven now. Yes. Um, yep, so there are seven. And so, I mean, it's, all, it's always been interesting for us that Massachusetts is kind of the one of the, um, is the seventh, right? Or maybe it's, I think it's seven, right, Jennifer? Amanda's here too. Um, so, because we actually, this is the fourth round. It was the fourth session it went through. Um, and we were kind of the first state to, to really look at the insurance cost and um, really do some deep digging on kind of how much it would cost and um, and what the benefits would be. And all these other states actually used um, the report that Massachusetts put out to kind of get their legislation passed. So we were just really excited it finally went through. Um, but I would say the, the biggest problem that we faced as kind of a, a barrier was definitely the insurance companies really kind of saying that it wasn't it, the IVIG wasn't empirically backed um, and or peer reviewed and, and didn't have enough um, evidence behind it. And we were able to really kind of link arms with people in Massachusetts, but also with all the providers nationwide and really gather all the research and really comprehensively put together a document to say, like, that's actually not true. And that document are kind of it was a rebuttal to an insurance uh, letter, an insurance carrier letter that they had kind of, um, were trying to dismiss the bill. And that letter we put together in Massachusetts is now being used kind of nationally to help other states get it passed. Is yeah, that it, it, Jennifer? Yeah. Yeah, no, I was going to say, um, so pandas, pans causes inflammation in the brain, um, as Susan explained, the basal ganglia. And so for some patients, it is just a simple course of antibiotics and a leave that cuts that inflammation and um, and they heal. Uh, for others, it takes steroids, like a prednisone type of medication, um, a little bit something more, um, and they get better. And then there's the, a subset of patients, and it's about 10% of patients that present so that are so acutely ill that they require this immune modulating therapy. And um, it is covered. It's not like this crazy therapy. It's used um, often uh, regularly with other autoimmune diseases. It just wasn't being covered for pandas pans. And it's pretty cost prohibitive. Uh, families were losing their houses. They've lost their jobs. They are maxing out their credit cards. It just, you know, um, just didn't seem right. It, it wasn't right. Uh, that insurance companies were, um, you know, trying to tell us that this is, you know, not the right treatment, whatever. So that's why we fought so hard um, to, like we said, to put that care between back between the doctor and their patient. Um, in Massachusetts, uh, interestingly enough, our um, mass health was already covering it. So the uh, 
the public health, that, is that how you would say it, Sheila? Um, Medicaid, the, yeah. It was uh, covering it, but not the private. So um, now we have everybody, hopefully, that will be covered. And it, it goes into effect um, January. It has to be, um, they have to comply, the insurance companies, by January 1st of next year. So they have a year. And the advisory uh, board, um, to kind of pick up on what you, what you um, started to, to say to begin with, that this can, pandas and pans can be treated effectively if caught soon enough, if recognized, if diagnosed, and it can be treated with another, uh, effectively with another course of antibiotics or with something that's as, as um, or and or with something as simple as uh, an Advil, uh, a um, or, or steroids, uh, if you have to go further than that. And so, with the advisory board, as if I recall correctly, you're going to be doing some awareness sorts of uh, campaigns. Is that right? Yes. I mean, our dream, like our dream, like Sheila and I were dreaming and then we were so blessed that, that we had senators and reps that got right behind our dream was to be able to, um, you know, when somebody walks into a pediatrician's office or to a doctor's office and they have a change in their mental health status, that they are ruling pandas pans out, right? Um, and how do we get that done? If we don't, we need to make the conversation bigger. And so the dream was to get this advisory council where we could start making discussions and recommendations to the Department of Public Health on practice guidelines, screening protocols. Um, the other things will be that will be looked at by the advisory council will be mechanisms to increase clinical awareness and education, along with outreach to um, educators, parents, and development of a network, like um, a PANDAS PANS network. So, I mean, right now, if one of us brought um, our spouse or loved one into an ER and they had had a change of mental health status, um, they would run a urinary test to see if you had a bladder infection or, um, or UTI. It's pretty, it's standard care. And unfortunately, what we found with our, our children in the pediatric and young adults, that this happens and they end up in the emergency rooms and they're being relegated to a psych floor and they're not looking for that underlying um, you know, infection. They're just treating the symptoms. So that's our dream here in Massachusetts and, and hopefully spread it across the country is to change that, that path. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's so important. Uh, in the case of Alex, she did go see psychiatrists and psychologists and she was routinely diagnosed with uh, OCD, yeah. which of course she did, her presenting symptoms were obsessions and compulsions. <clears throat> But no one ever asked her if she had had a recent infection of some sort. Were you, uh, did you have strep? Did you uh, come in contact with a, a tick? Um, no one asked her about her medical history. So I even had her go see a psychiatrist who I know here, and he did not ask her anything about her medical history. I, and that's the, the awareness has got to increase in uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, 
and other kinds of mental health workers who are, are seeing these patients in their offices and not inquiring about medical, previous medical conditions. Well, right. And we know, I mean, Susan, just you and I as mental health folks, right? Like we know that our first um, obligation is to rule out medical. So it we, we shouldn't be diagnosing anything else without rule outs, right? And so it's it's actually really important that we establish what that medical rule out is and how we do it, right, um, in this case, so that there, it's always a question when a, when a child or a young adult presents, or an adult, even, yeah, I think. Exactly. So you guys are doing some things at the um, national level, too. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? So yes, and I know Amanda Crowley is here as well, so I'm and not so sure. I don't, Ari, maybe can, if Amanda wants to talk, maybe we can open her. Yeah, because Amanda, um, Jennifer and Amanda and Blake and I have all kind of worked together the last couple of weeks to really get this, the language that Amanda can, Amanda really went um, with her father, Terry, who I think is on here as well, right, Amanda? Yeah. I think he is. Yeah. <laughs> So, which is amazing. And, it is amazing. And we're you know, so, about, I was so happy to hear that from Amanda. Yeah, so grateful that he can join here as well. So, um, yeah, so. To, me, to, one second. Yeah. Um, Ari or, or Foti, are you, are you there so that we could turn on another microphone? Yes, we are. Who would you like to turn on? I, uh, Amanda Crowley. Amanda Crowley. Amanda's iPhone. Amanda's iPhone, that's it. Okay. And I believe she should be coming on. Okay. Amanda? Hi, I'm here. Um, <laughs> Hi, Amanda. I'm, I'm, I'm not super prepared like the, the rest of you, but um, thank you. I'm, this is just an amazing, am, amazing series of events and um, that, you're, that you're hosting Susan and Townie and um, the, the wine is absolutely lovely um we've we've enjoyed it many different times now um <laughs> and just so so glad to be sharing this time with everybody here tonight um we we do have um exciting things happen happening on a on a on the federal level with with pans and pandas um the past two years we've had um what's called language in the appropriations bill with Congress. Um, it's, it's really a, um, a piece of the, of the legislation that, um, that directs NIH to shine a spotlight on pans and pandas. So we're, we are um, one of the many, many obstacles that our kids face um, and, and, adults face anyone who has pans or pandas um, and many, you know, are undiagnosed. Um, we don't have a biomarker. We don't have, we haven't, we haven't discovered the mechanism for this condition. And so it, it becomes a clinical diagnosis. It's very, it's hard for a, a pediatrician, a any kind of doctor to just say, yes, you have this or no, you don't. And we, we need, we need, we need 
really good, vigorous research. Um, and that just hasn't happened because funding hasn't come through for, um, for this condition. And, you know, there's, there's many other kind of orphan conditions or rare diseases that fall in, and especially those that are thought to be, um, or have, have been thought to be um, psychiatric in nature that in, in, in the, you know, that, that actually are biological. I think actually everything is biological, um, but we're finding out more and more about these conditions. So we're, um, we, we've now lived through a year of, of COVID. We know what happens with post-infectious conditions. Um, we think this is the time for, NIH to step up their funding. We think we have a condition that actually actually should, sheds a lot of light on other post-infectious conditions, including what happens with COVID, and um, and it could it could really inform what um, the research is um, looking at across the board. So. Um, we're hoping Congress will say yes to putting some more language in the appropriations bill this year. We're reaching out to members of Congress right now and asking that they submit the language. Um, we have people across the country helping out with this, and we're grateful for Susan and Towney who have spread the word and um, other people who are on the call tonight, um, other leaders from other organizations. Um, I think we can really come together and A, get the language in and B, raise awareness with members of Congress. And that will, I think, um, help our cause with, with NIH. NIH is the biggest grantor of research funds by far anywhere. Um, I mean, research can happen at like a little tiny level with private donations and then NIH comes in with millions and millions of dollars for a disease. So we, that's what we need. We need to escalate things and fast track things and all of our kids need it. So thank you for everybody listening tonight and everyone doing such great work. And you and Jennifer and Sheila and Blake are, are doing phenomenal work. And uh, just, just another shout out, shout out to your dad. Um, I'm so glad that, that he's here. Um, when you told me he was coming, I actually got a little bit nervous because I think that he is um, such an important person in all of this oh. advocacy work. And um, Mr. Peel, thank you very much for, for being here. Um, we do have a couple of people on who I know were um, have been involved in in sending some of the uh, information that you want sent to um, to the members of the House Appropriations Committee, and uh, so thank you, James, for making that happen. I know Diana uh, Pullman, uh, who is the executive director of uh, Pandas Network, is in the process of sending something to uh, her representatives in. In California. Um, if you would like to be involved in, in some way, please let um, me know and I can, if it's okay with you, Amanda, forward that information that you had sent out. It doesn't take very Thank long you. to do it and it would be incredibly helpful. It is time sensitive. Um, so uh, 
it's yeah. uh let me know right away and we'll do that so thank you thank you for thanks everybody for all of that and i think that we're with that it's probably about time for david to take the bread out the bread of is coming out in 12 seconds in 12, 12 seconds. seconds so then let me just say that uh yes we do have it's not a puppy uh penny who's alex's dog is um she's too old to be doing this uh she's, she's probably nine years old and she's making lots of noise because she's like a child we're looking at something else so she wants our attention and and, and here she is yeah thank you that's who you heard mark <laughs> all okay. right hold on just a second because i had so many loaves of bread i have to get the next one in ah well, I wish that we were your neighbors. I wish you were our neighbors too, but our neighbors are going to get lucky this Easter. <laughs> okay. So the loaf of bread is out and just get my timer on here. Great. And it looks like this. It's very hot. So I'm going to pick it up with the towel. There is the loaf of bread. Oh, wow. Look at that. That it scrappy a, dough turned into that. That scrappy dough turned into that. Nice hollow sound. Really good crust. Wow. Yeah, and I, I'd seen that Mary said that hers was coming out of the oven. So I don't know. Did Mary, did you mean that you put some bread in yesterday? Um, so I put some bread in this morning. Ah, and it didn't and just come out? It just came out. I I don't know how to do the video. Huh. We see you. Yeah, we see oh, you. Oh, you do? You can hold it up. Oh, I can't see. Oh, me. look at that. <laughs> wow. We are impressed, Mary. Uh, it looked like a piece of crap, actually. Yeah. It did, David. It was it actually, as you described it, and we didn't shake the... the um, uh, Dutch oven, so I think that's why it looks kind of um, uh, crappy. But anyway, I'm sure it'll taste good. I only shake the Dutch oven if I didn't get it in the center. And sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I just try desperately not to burn my hands as I'm putting it in. Oh yeah, oh that's key. Yes, <laughs> but thank you. It was it was really fun. It's really easy, isn't it? It's so easy. Yes, thank you. And I see Joan Sisko saying, yum, Joan, you'll have to make some. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that we're, um, it, are there any other quite quick questions? I think that I've covered most of them. Red, people are asking about our other dog. Our other dog is upstairs with a bone because I imagine you were on another webinar that we did where he would not stop talking. So That's probably a good idea. Nice. Yes. <laughs> So, all right, David. I would like to propose a toast to dear Alex. I, yeah, to Alex. Cheers. Cheers. And, Cheers. and we will raise our glasses to, to Alex. And I, I, I hope she's here tonight with us. Um, we do have a painting that, that one of her childhood friends um, painted for her in the back. So um, I hope that she's here with us. I'd like to hold our glasses up also for the other children. 
adolescents, adults, and their families who are in this courageous battle with pandas and pans, uh, or basal ganglia encephalitis. And, and we are working as hard as we can to, uh, as I've said now several times, raise awareness about this. Keep our glasses up for the, the doctors, the, the psychologists, the other mental health workers and nurses and teachers, uh, social workers, everyone who's out there working on, on our behalf and to the researchers who are doing super research, um, identifying how these, these autoantibodies cross the brain blood, brain, um, blood barrier, um, blood brain barrier, uh, or uh, trying to identify biomarkers or working on the microbiome closer to you, David, at the University of Arizona. There's so much that's, uh, that's going on. There's a lot of work that's going on at Georgetown. We have, we donated Alex's brain for research and they um, will begin that work very soon at uh, the brain bank at Georgetown University under the um, guidance of Dr. Brent Harris. So to him and to, to everybody else who's working on this, thank you. And thank you all for, for tuning in again, thank you, Fodi and and uh, Ari. Our uh, pleasure. Thank you, Jennifer and um, Sheila and Amanda. Thank you, everyone, very much. Cheers. 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 Cheers, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Okay. All right. Wow. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Susan and Towney, and Fodi. Thank you. It was an amazing amazing webinar full of very good information and thanks and you're amazing people and again uh if you want to buy the wine please turn to the cork stop or the online urban wine club it's the only store right now in our country that's that's selling alex's wine there is a store in france if you're in france i think we have one person maybe who's calling in from france um but anyway, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Good night. Cheers. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.